0: Hey, it's Fitz, and if you don't know who I am, here's a quick bio. I'm a veteran sports journalist who writes, does TV, radio, and is a longtime podcaster. Also, I have stage four prostate cancer, so during the initial stages of the COVID-19 outbreak, my doctors advised me to stay at home. But now, a little more than a year later, I'm fully vaccinated and I've rejoined society. But I'm still continuing this podcast when I'm calling the many friends, athletes, coaches, and colleagues who I've met throughout my 30 years in this industry. Plus this year, I'm going to be calling some people and making new friends. Oh, and I'm hitting the record button. Welcome to my life and the Life of Fits podcast. The history of Kansas State football is so rich with dynamic, memorable players that came to Kansas State to play for Bill Snyder. And early on, when Kansas State was still getting its recruiting feet under it, Jim Levitt was tearing it up, recruiting players out of Florida to come to Kansas State. It was probably a hard sell, but there was so much talent in Florida. In fact, he went in and found this defensive end. He was a linebacker in high school and pretty good basketball player, but he didn't look anything like a defensive end. In fact, he was way too skinny to be a defensive end. It was kind of comical to even think of him as such. I remember the first time I met Darren Howard in the Big 8 room of the old veneer complex. He walked in, and that was the thought all of us had. How the heck is this guy a defensive end at this level of football? It was astonishing how good he was, how athletic he stayed despite increasing his weight maybe 50, 60 pounds over the course of his career. It was incredible to watch Darren Howard play. He was, to me, the Michael Bishop of defensive ends for Kansas State. There's never been one like him. Before or after a Kansas State, just one of those pure pass rush guys who could also hold his own against the run. He played a significant role in those great Kansas State teams. 97, 98, his senior year was 99. And then he spent 10 years in the NFL. So now let's call Darren Howard in Tampa, Florida. Hello. Hey, Darren. How are you doing, man? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good, brother. I'm good. How are you? Uh, that, good. Yeah, I am. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> just I didn't political. know if it was uh, too too early for you. This is. I'm usually, it is. This
1: is. I'm usually up at the crack of dawn, so I I gotta check myself sometimes. I, I was going
0: to text you 7:30, and I was like, no. <laughs> yeah. I'm i Am not going to work with him. I uh, I am not a uh, morning person. I'm not at all a morning person, but I had an important duty this morning. Uh, I was charged with getting the dogs to the groomer and uh, oh, that is important. I know. So I had to be up and around. So it's uh, especially when th- that's who you work with all day is the dogs. So if they start smelling, those are literally your coworkers. So <laughs> you, got, you got to do something with them. I'm, I'm used to stinky coworkers, man. <laughs> well, What's catch my me up on a uh, stunk. Catch <laughs> me up on Darren Howard. What what's going on? You're down in Tampa now. What all you got going on in your life? Wife, kids. uh Got got a late start on all that stuff,
1: you know. Yeah. Um. Fully focused on football until after retirement, and then my wife six years ago. Um. Now we have three kids, That's... so you know, kind of just hit the speed button on that. For then, so my
0: kids are seven. Uh. How old are my kids? <laughs> seven, five, and two. Man, seven. And so five, you, you were in your late 30s when you, you decided it's time for kids, right? Mm. Well, yeah. Well, yeah.
1: I don't know if I decided
0: it. But <laughs> somebody did. <laughs> yeah, uh I get that. Um that'll mean you're an old man at high school graduations. That's okay though. That's okay. Oh you're, yeah. You'll be yeah, the cool of all I've already envisioned that. Yeah, I'm trying
1: to figure out how to get my outfits together and everything. <laughs> <laughs> because I got a I got a, I got it in the
0: Exactly. So um what all you got going on in your career? I've noticed you do some audio stuff and you're just kind of uh, got your fingers in a lot of things, don't you?
1: Yeah. Um master of none. Huh. you know you what know I'm saying, yeah. um, but right now I'm in my studio um we do a lot of um voiceover work for movies and television, so right now i'm I'm here every day, which wasn't always the case, but the last ever since COVID started, this is like this sanctuary where I can come and be safe because we only have maybe five to ten people coming out of the building a week so um yeah, this is where I spend most of my time. I'm into real estate. Um, my wife opened the shop, so that, that ran me ragged for about a year and a half, <laughs> trying to get that started. Retail is a is a monster. Man. Oh, man. Um, and we we were going to open in March of last year, so um, we were getting all wrapped up. We got the renovations done, and COVID came and squashed all our plans, so we had to pivot, get to or get our online store rocking, and, and just do it a different way, so... Um, But, you know, it's still up and running and hoping for, you know, things to open up uh, a little
0: faster pretty
1: soon here and, um, uh, you know, get ahead of things.
0: Yeah, man, that – you talk about bad timing for you, getting ready to open a physical location and boom, the whole world changed. What did you learn about yourself during that process and being able to pivot like that?
1: Um. I don't know. I, I, I always consider myself flexible. So, you know, uh, anytime, anytime things come along that I can, I can manage them and I can figure out what to do next. I'm very like procedural in things. Um, but I was able to navigate along with somebody else in doing that. Yeah. You know, most, most of my life is just me internal, <laughs> figure it out. But now, you know, we're in this thing together we have to figure out together. She has her visions. I have, I don't really have visions for her shop. I'm just in the back end, in the skeleton, just trying to make things work, make the numbers work, make the inventory work, get the online store operational and, effect, and effective. So, you know, just working hand-to-hand with her, I mean, it's it's um, it's been a learning process, the whole marriage thing, not even just COVID, just, just being married is, is totally different, you
0: know? Mm-hmm. I know. I know it's uh I, I know you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm at 31 years, so it's uh it's it's kind of like walking through a minefield every day and you hope to get to the other side and somehow you keep doing it. It's awesome. But it's good. Every day. It's good. Um I'm fascinated by how you got into audio production. How how did you end up with in, in that field? It's it's a really cool field. Um well, I probably started
1: with one of my little league coaches. He um, he was a big audio head. Like, he was just, every car he had, he had the loudest speakers in the city, right? So, it started there, and he took me to his friend's house that was a DJ, and he had all this equipment. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. What are you guys doing? So, you know, I, just, I take that stuff back, not the equipment, but that idea back home. And we had, like, a uh, one of those multi... Um, multi audio stereo device that had like an eight track and a record player and a Mm -hmm. a radio, AM FM radio and all that, all in one piece. And, um, I started trying to DJ with that thing, you know, just going inside of it, rewiring it and just doing all, just tearing it up. So, um, finally my coach gave me a mixer. That was my first real piece. And I had that mixer all the way through college actually. And, um, I got to college. I started DJing, doing a lot of the DJing parties, doing the parties at the union and um, house parties, started building up my equipment, and then got the bug to actually make the music that I was playing. So I got some production music, started making beats, and guys would come over to the house, and I built a whole isolation booth in one of one of our houses. Um, guys would come over. We'd be there four or five hours till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning making songs. So it just kind of it started there and then got to New Orleans, built another studio, got to Philly, had one in my house, got to Tampa, bought a building that was already a studio, and ended up taking over the business. And now I have, you know, I don't know how much money worth of investment in here. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's fun. It's something that, you know, I caught a bug with early. And, um, you know, just trying to keep it going. You know, it's something that I enjoy doing. Real estate pays the bills. This doesn't really, you know, we honestly, like we have two employees here and um, uh, they've been able to keep them afloat, but, um, you know, as technology increases, the need for physical studio for people, especially now in COVID, like everybody's at home, you know, you can record people through Source Connect or Session Link Pro or even Zoom sometimes, and they don't have to even come to the building. So um, the technology is getting more affordable. So our rates go down, kind of that trade-off kind of thing. Yep. So, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, we're just trying to navigate and, p- and pivot once again into other areas that we can help people with their social media accounts and their logos and graphics and web design and kind of expanding the portfolio of our office.
0: First of all, how do how did I never know about DJ Darren Howard during – your football time? Because um, he didn't exist. His name was DJ PJ. <laughs> first
1: of all, because did, I wore pajamas to my. Uh, oh, to my gig.
0: that's freaking awesome! <laughs> that's freaking awesome. <laughs> not only does it is it a, a kind of a gimmick, but man, you're comfortable as hell too. That's that's amazing. Um, that's amazing. Not only is it kind of a gimmick, but you are comfortable as hell too. It's nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very comfortable. Like I can
1: go do my gig and then come back home and get straight in the bed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did uh my brush my teeth? I might not. I mean, I was 20 years old. I mean, exactly. what do I don't know what I was doing. Did uh Bill Snyder know about DJ PJ? I think he did. I think yeah, he he had to
1: because we did a um I forget the show that used to feature the the players. I don't know if they still do it. But, um, it was me um, um Aaron Lockett mm-hmm. and uh, somebody else they did, they did a little piece, and they came into the they came to the studio, and Aaron was in the in the booth so it was a it was a little thing going on there and every once in a while on the movie nights before the game he would let me bring the equipment in, and I would play beats and people would rap and instead of watching movies or play video games, whatever we did. So I, he had to know, but I don't nice. think he was really concerned
0: with it. <laughs> you never knew with coach. I mean, N- no, you, you, that could be okay. And then, uh, you could wear an earring into the building and all hell breaks. No. Loose. Yeah. You will never see it. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think he has still the collection of earrings and stuff somewhere? He took I, so many off of players. It's unbelievable. I have no idea, man. You know, I, I I don't know. Maybe he
1: melted it down, and now it's just a gold bar. Just <laughs> a paperweight on his desk. Like, not Oh, so we we all have these like grand ideas of what he does and stuff, what he says into his um his his recordable his his, his vocal recorder. You know, when he's on the sideline, yep, at practice, yep, just one to get a hold of one of those
0: pictures of what's going on. Well, you know, my guy D Scott Fritchen is uh, co-authoring Bill's autobiography that comes out this fall. Um, oh, I thought it was already out. No, it, it's, it's on pre-sale, but it comes out in November, like before okay. Thanksgiving. And he had access to Coach's personal diary for this. So, oh, wow. so coach would read his diary to Scott and they'd go through it and talk about it. I'm like, Whoa, Whoa. Yeah, what I, I, was I going I through his it. head? Yeah. I have to read it. Yeah, it's going to be really have good, to. and it's kind of funny. It was supposed to be like 260 pages, but I know D Scott, and it ended up being 400. So you know, <laughs> it's going to be an investment of time to get into it. But I'm looking right. forward to it. Um, uh, so many topics right now. Let's talk about more about um, this kind of alteration in society. How how how's older Darren Howard handling all of these? changes that, dude, they come so fast. I mean, and particularly the pandemic set it off. You're right. I mean, we had an office. We had a studio. uh, We had a great setup. And in the pandemic, we lost our lease. And like you said, pivot, build a home studio. And now I'm sitting in my basement with a soundproofed room and a soundboard. And i got four mics for podcasting. It's amazing how adept we all ended up being, needing to adjust on the fly to the pandemic, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Uh, And, you know, while some of us were lucky to be able to do so, like a lot of people weren't, you know, it's it's just not a possibility for some people to move their jobs to home. And they just have to, like the essential workers, they still have to go in and, you know, like hats off to all the nurses and doctors that were going through that, you know, like there's no pivoting there. (laughs) Yeah, it was just nose to the the ground and keep grinding, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean i I have a guy I have a friend that um has a had an i t business well has an i t business too and um he had a a big lease on this big building had you know over a hundred employees and um they had all the good software to work from home, but they never ran it and he was telling me he all he had to do was push a button and he sent everybody home and they never missed a beat like that's that's <laughs> that's what you really want to be able to do in a situation like that but um you know, a lot of people weren't able to do that. Uh, so, just depending on where you were, but pandemic has been rough, man. It's, you know, for a lot of people. Yeah. And um you know, it it seemed like it went by fast, but a lot of people still hurting and feeling the effects of it. So, um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's just rough, man. It's, it's something that I hope we don't have to live through again in this lifetime.
0: No, you know? no, I'm with you. It, a lot of people work their entire lives for stuff that they lost in the course of a year. And it's, mm-hmm. it's been awful. And a lot of people that just need to work couldn't, couldn't work at all. So it's just been, right been something yeah. else. Um, let's, let's change directions here and talk about how Darren Howard, uh, Florida high school football player ended up at Kansas state university. Who who was your rec- was Jim Levitt the guy that recruited you back then? It was Jim Levitt. Yeah, Yes. and he was a madman. Oh, he still is.
1: <laughs> um, I committed. Well, I took almost all of my. Well, I took four official visits, and um, I went on an unofficial visit to South Carolina, and then I went back on an official visit um, with a with a high school rival of mine, Sean King, he played quarterback at the time, um, played with the Bucs for why he ended up going to UNO and New Orleans. Um, no, Tulane, excuse me. Um, but we, we um, committed to South Carolina together. And we were on the same plane going, same plane coming back. Had it all planned out, had it all figured out. And um, the guy that was recruiting me left. So you know how the recruiting game goes. Like when you have a coach that recruits you, he's watched all the tape, he's into you, and then another coach that hasn't senior your tape, and he has his own set of guys. He he likes that guy. So the guy that took over our region um, wasn't a big fan. And um, that's when Jim Levitt came in, and um, he wanted me to come to Kansas State and take, it, take a look. And um, I called South Carolina, the coach, and I was like, you know, I'm going to take this last visit before <clears throat> I make it official official. And I didn't think anything. I, th- I just thought it was going to be another visit, and I will come back. But he said, uh, "Well, don't be surprised if there's no scholarship when you come back." So that let me know what that was going to be. You know, mm-hmm. that kind of turned me off. From the, even even the two visits I went to was gr- were great. I loved the coach, loved the facilities, environment. It was closer to home, even though it wasn't in Florida. But I I just don't like you know. I don't, I don't, I don't like mess. You know that that seemed like it was going to be a mess. You know, right? Just from that one comment. So I went to Kansas State, still open. You know, not thinking I'm, I'm not going to go to South Carolina, but that kind of, you know, turned my stomach a little bit. So I go to South um, Kansas State, I go to um, Kansas City, and I land. <laughs> I have no idea about the geography of Kansas, first of <laughs> all. So when I land, um, two guys. Meet me there. They both have on black leather jackets. What? I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> but they have on black. It's cold, but you know, this black leather jackets. Okay, well, let's go. They, say, they just said, Darren Howard. They say, yes, okay, follow me. All right, I'll follow And we walk through the airport. I'm thinking we're going to uh, outside to a car. And we walk like literally down the hall and then back onto the tarmac. And we walk into this little plane. <laughs> so, um, my recruiting trips were of my first flights ever in life. Mm-hmm. And then this plane was big enough for them two in the front and me in the back. That was it. Oh so God. I was already definitely, I was definitely afraid of flying on big planes. So we got on that plane and that plane was, it was windy and that plane was all over the place. And, um, to finally get there, I think I'm sweating by that time. <laughs> get we land in Manhattan at the airport and um Kendall Jacob is my uh recruit. Nice. Uh, my, uh, so um he was from Texas. I thought I I met everybody, saw the facility. Um the guys were great. Um we went we went out twice to the same spot. Back then I I haven't been back to Manhattan in a while, but back then I it wasn't that big as big as it is now. Yeah. There were there were no options. We went to the same place twice. So okay, I, I, I got it. this. is a small town. This is this is what we do. Okay, so it was fine, and I was on my way back, and then you know once I got home back to uh, Saint Petersburg, um, just started weighing my options, started looking at the rosters, um, trying to figure out who else they were recruiting because my thing was I wanted to play as soon as possible. So it really came down to the roster. Um, Kansas State had been to some bowl games where so they were winning some games. And um, just the, the overall atmosphere of the two, two cities. So uh, pretty much the the opportunity to play early weighed heavily more than anything else. And at the time, I think we had Dirk Oaks was a senior. And now wiring was a junior on the other side. Well, so I redshirted and then that next year I got some playing time as a freshman. So I mean that that was the whole goal. And people from Florida thought I was crazy to go to Kansas. I thought I had lost my mind. They <laughs> might have been right. Every um, little league coaches, high school coaches, friends, family, I like what? My mom didn't even think I was going. She just thought I was going to have fun. And I came back, I told her I was going. And she was like she didn't believe me.
0: <laughs> until she dropped me off. <laughs> and how much did Darren Howard weigh at that time? Oh
1: my God. Um two twenty? I didn't I didn't play football to go to college until right before my senior year. So I started gaining like purposely with lifting weights and trying to gain weight at that time. And I got to two twenty during football season. My senior year and then basketball season was right after that. So I was back to like one ninety five by the end of that. So I probably walked on the campus maybe two oh five, maybe. Less than two ten, I know that. I
0: I remember the first time I saw you, I'm like, Hold on, this guy's a defensive end? What? I mean, it well, was, I was amazing about- how you transformed your body. When when did you really start to fill out and become I mean you talked about playing as a redshirt freshman, you obviously put on some masks pretty quickly.
1: Too quickly, if
0: you <laughs> ask me. Like um, between Coach Cole's the
1: creatine and the supplements and the fat sacks that they gave us at night, like you ate dinner, and you go to the study hall and then you send home with a fat sack with just a bag a brown bag of junk food. Which you would eat every night. Ice cream sandwiches, all the whole shebang. And um Probably by following that season, before spring ball, I was 260. Man. I went from 205 to 260 within the span of a year. And couldn't move. (laughs) I was slow. And um, I lost it all. I decided to lose all the way. So I lost all that weight, and I got down to like 230. And then every year I gained like 5, 10 pounds. I ended up around 245, 250 by the time I graduated. But, um, yeah, they, they packed them on quick. But it was it didn't help me. It didn't help me at all. So, I, uh, never realized, back
0: down. <clears throat> I never realized when I was in college, I was training like a football player. I ate the same kind of stuff. But... <laughs> I too put on 50 pounds in my freshman year, but <laughs> good job. I never shook it. I just kept adding to it. It was a good collection. And so I just kept yeah. putting it on. Um, that's incredible. What now, what did you end up playing at when you were in the NFL? What kind of weight were you carrying at that level? Um, so new Orleans, when I got to new Orleans, we had
1: three D tackles called the, uh, the heavy lunch punch. These was uh, Norman hands, um, um, Grady Jackson and Martin Chase. Martin Chase was Oklahoma. And Martin Chase was the smallest guy. He was 340.
0: Oh my goodness. No
1: Man was like 360, and Grady had to be like 360 or 360. Um, The defensive ends that were there at the time were two eight, two 280 a piece. So, you know, I go there. I'm 265. I mean, the draft, the, um, Draft people are telling me that I'm too light, I was too skinny. So when I left Kansas State around 250, 255, I went on another, in, uh, eat another eating bench, just trying to get heavy for the scales at the Scotland Combine. And, um, still only got up to But, um, got to New Orleans, everybody's huge. So I played my, probably my first year around 265. I got as heavy as 285 towards the end of my running in New Orleans. And um, by the time when I got to Philly, it was the opposite. Everybody was small. Everybody was small and fast. So our D-tackles were barely 300 pounds. My biggest guy was barely 300 pounds in that line. Um, so my first year, I was still around 270. And then after that, I was 245. I was back to college weight. 245, 250 max for the remainder of the time.
0: It's kind of amazing how just within your career, the perceptions of what a D end should be in the NFL change so much and it, go well, from do. this big run stopper to the back to your dynamic pass rushing size. It's incredible. Yeah.
1: It it caught me off guard too. Like I just thought, you know, you just get as big as you can. And as um, long as you can still pass rush a bit, you're good. But, um, you know, definitely they wanted them small and fast. Small and fast, what's what the thing there? So, again, pivot. Mm-hmm. Pivot and uh, fit into the mold.
0: Yep. Um Let's roll it back to Kansas State. And Niall Wyron, was was he in any way a role model? And if so, how did that screw you up for life? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, now was an absolute animal, yeah. Um, but yeah, I tell you, I tell you this: like, I was a blue chip linebacker. Every school I visited and, and every school that recruited me wanted me as a linebacker. Kansas State and, and uh, coach eleven was the only school that wanted me to play defensive in. So coming to Kansas State was like it was a whole complete change of position to come here. Also, so when I got there, I didn't really. No pass rush because I didn't pass rush. You know, I just you know I was I was quick. I was on the quick side, and I had good leverage. But I didn't know hand moves, how to move your hips, how to flip your feet out, all that stuff. And I got that through a combination of drills, and I got that through now. My I patterned my pass rush off of a combination of now and Andrew Timmons. Hmm. You know, Andrew Timmons is he's, he's down here. I talk to him every couple of months. He lives around here and I tell him all the time. Like a lot of my pass lesson game is modeled off of what I saw you do. And um he was a guy that got hurt a lot. And I thought he was super talented, but he couldn't stay healthy to not stay healthy. But um yeah, between now, now showed me my first um technique. He took me to the post and taught me how to hit the bag and 50 hips out. And I mean, to the day i stopped playing football i was doing that drill so you know my last my 10th year in philly after practice i was on the goal folks on the pad doing the same move so um yeah but you know off the field you can't follow you can't follow them <laughs> you can't you got to separate them i, I used to, i hung out with them um as a freshman but no as a wrestler freshman and um just that, that whole that whole, like, 95 and 96 defense, that those two years where I, I just got there, redshirted one and then redshirted freshman my next year and got some playing time, that defense was, like, those some intimidating guys. I know. All of them, across the board. I mean, you go from Mario Smith to the Sean Fogle with the biggest sort of pass in human history. Yeah, Purcell Gass was a linebacker that won the high jump championship in the big tour, right? Yeah. It's crazy. What a big eight was the yeah. big eight.
0: Yeah. Big eight back then.
1: Um, David Damon. We had um, Andrew Timmons. We had Dirk Oaks with, I mean, he's like what? Six, seven <laughs> he, like lurch. was just, just big old massive guy. And um, I mean, those guys would just take your lunch, like literally, you know, on a daily. So um, like we were good. Our, our deep was good, but just coming in as a freshman and seeing those guys, like one of the, I was telling my guys here at the studio the other day about when I met Brian Goosby when we were in the same class, I think he, I'm think i thinking he's an offensive lineman. He tells me he's a running back. I'm like, there's, there's no way you're a running back. So, you go to practice, and we're doing middle drill. And I guess this is their, they moved Brian to fullback, I guess. He was playing running back in high school, and now he's a fullback. And we're doing middle drill, no DBs, no wide receivers. The ball's coming in between the tackles somewhere. And they had to run ISO plays seven, eight, nine, ten times in a row. But he had to go head up with PG and Deshaun Fole and David Damon over and over and over again. I think they were trying to break him. Or just see what he was made of. And he didn't back down, but the level of contact and noise that those collisions were making, and he was coming back with, you know, blood trickling out his nose and, you know, the linebackers were going crazy out there. every play—I don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm made for this. Like, is, is this what college football is? Is this it? So, but you know, I, just that—those kind of interactions and those kind of things you see when you're a freshman—you're just getting there, and you're just coming from high school, and you're 18 years old, and just the whole new experience in a new city and a new state, new people, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot, man. But you know, those guys put their arms around you too. Also at the same time, you know, and they, they, they bring you along because it was the mob mentality, you know, because you have to step up, you know, if um, somebody goes down or when it's, you know, two or three years from now, when you're the guy. so.
0: They're amazing times. I mean, it's it's absolutely amazing uh, for me as a guy from the outside to look back and realize I witnessed the beginnings of K-State football and what it, you know, kind of became. But you're in the middle of it. Do you, do you ever look back and think yeah. those were incredible times?
1: It was. I mean, you know, when I decided to go there and I started doing my research on Kansas State because I had really I've never heard of the school. You know, I was never – a guy or a kid that watched a lot of college football. So it was only a handful of things that I really knew about. So, you know, after doing the research and going back and checking out some of the bowl games and um, and knowing the the history of Kansas State, if you can call it a history, um, to where they were now, I saw it as an opportunity. You know, I saw it as an opportunity to go somewhere and and build something. You know, or help build something because it was already getting started. And when I got there, I was like, "Yeah, I, I, we're going to be good." Like there was no, there was not a year where you were going to practice or you're going to training camp or you had those cat days where you have four practices in one day and walked out thinking like we're only going to win five, six. There was, there was none of that. I knew we were going to be good. I knew we were going to blow a lot of teams out every single year. Every single game. So it was mean, it was great, man. We had fun, man. We were, we were together and everything. Um never any drama between players that I remember uh that you know was was really consequential. But uh yeah, I mean, it was a great time man. We were winning a lot of games, we were going out with his wildcat was he was swole from doing push ups, some of push ups <laughs> The crowd was jumping and they followed us everywhere. I mean, it was great. Like, what, what well, I'm from a college experience. Like, what else could you, you know, what else could you want other than a, a national championship?
0: Yeah, the the last edition of this podcast, I talked to Matt Miller and, um, you know, it, it just really got me thinking about that 95 Holiday Bowl. and how important that was to the program but i remember being in san diego and there's like 25,000 k state fans in san diego and people in san diego are like what the hell is going on here it was yeah. there was a really cool times so, number of people that were traveling everywhere
1: yeah that was a good that was big too because we we automatically knew wherever we went we were going to be the home team no matter what the bowl game mm-hmm. or where it was we were going to be the home team we could play a team in california in a bowl in california and see how more fans there at that time. So, yeah, it was great, man.
0: It, I mean, the fan cool was off. Hey, it's Fitz. Let's hit the pause button right here and take a little break. So, your last season was 99, correct? So, correct. yeah. Yeah, so, those 97 and 98 teams, how, how good were you guys? I mean, it, it just looking back on 98 i I don't really think there's a question in my mind that that's the best K State team in school history, but what was it like to be on the inside of that group?
1: I don't think I've ever been a part of anything where you like you knew that you knew what the outcome was going to be like you were so sure and so certain based on you know the work you put in based on the guys around you based on your coach based on the ability of all the, um, all the amenities that you need. We will like it was, we knew the confidence was there that we knew we were going to put up big numbers and we were going to hit a lot of people and, um and win games, you know, I mean, that's even as a pro, you know, New Orleans in six years and Philly in four, I don't remember, but maybe, a handful of games that I knew walking in that we were going to win. That was every week at Kent State. Every week. No matter who we were playing. Even when we played Nebraska, I was like, we're too good. We are too good. We're going to win. So, uh,
0: that's, I mean, that's something that I haven't experienced since. No, those are those were amazing teams because you just didn't win. You just, the game would get away so quickly. Sometimes it was completely non-competitive by the second half. It was amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, that 98 team, everyone, you know, and some rightfully so talks about Michael Bishop in that offense, but mm-hmm. dude, that defense. I mean, that, that, yeah. that team was really about defense, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean,
1: we, um, I'm the biggest fan of Michael Bishop.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, like, um, from the day he walked in the first time I met him, I think, I think I, I told him this story. Um, and everybody knew that, um, Mike was one of the toughest guys on the team and we were, so I'm standing in those apartments right across that used to be right across the mistake. And I don't know if they're still there. I mean, it's been so long. They probably fell down, but, um, lives in those apartments, and we were at a house party like a couple doors down from mine. And the first time I met Mike, I didn't even talk to him. I didn't know, really know who he was. So this is when he had just got there. That's another guy. And he's walking, he's standing in the doorway of the house party talking to a girl. And he's kind of leaning, he's got it, you know, being cool, got his hand. Um, he's, he's leaning on the doorway, right? So I walk in. Somebody tells me, hey, close the door. I say, all right. So I turn around. I close. Oh, and I was leaving. I'm sorry. I was leaving. I was coming out. And they said, close the door behind you. So I close the door behind me. Mike's still in the doorway talking to the girl. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> and um, he taps me my shoulder. And uh, he said, hey, open that door. I was like, no. Nah. They just told me to close the door. Why I open it? Just, just open the door. All right. So I open the door. And he pulls his hand. Out of the hinge part of the door three fingers deep oh my god and just calmly tapped me on my shoulder and actually open the door instead of him opening the door himself which he could or just an hour or something hey open the door for me like oh so i just walked away i still didn't know who he was and when i got to practice probably the next day or the next two days and saw he was our quarterback i'm like all right so that's <laughs> That's who we to want to be. You want to be one of those tough guys that, um, that get things done. So that's my, Michael Bishop story, but going on that's to um, the defense, story. like, but going on to the defense, um, I mean, we were loaded. We were loaded every, at every position. You can cover, you can hit, you can pass rush. We had a, a, defensive tackle that played off the tackle the next year and went and went to the draft, went in the NFL draft and Damian McIntosh. Yeah, that was incredible. Um, uh, We were deep at defensive end. We were deep at linebackers. Um, some of the some of the great linebackers that K state they had after that were you know freshmen and sophomores that didn't get any playing time. They were just watching and waiting their time. But you know between Jeff Kelly and Mark Seminole Lieber, Monty Beisel was was um, somebody in behind me. I think that '98 season. A lot of our D tackles got hurt in the half, second half of the season. I played D tackle exclusively. Well, Omani got a lot of time um, along with Chris Johnson. He got a lot of time that year too. And, um, you know, the shot Carter at corner, Lamar Jackson at some, I mean, every, every position was filled, you know, um, still wise. So I, I, I thought, I had never been a part of anything as loaded, as ingrated. I mean, I want to stay title in high school in basketball, but we weren't that good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, we had, we had we had to fight and scratch, you know? But, you know, if something got past the D-line, we knew the linebackers had it. If somebody got past the linebackers, we knew the safeties had it. You know? So, that's just that's just how we roll, man. Yeah, it's
0: amazing. It it's great that's... to be part of. So, you get drafted in the second round, Correct. Um, right. You go off to training camp, and I've heard ex-players say that what they went through with Coach Snyder so completely prepared them for the NFL that it they approached those early days of the NFL training camp totally different than maybe someone from another program. Was it? Was that your experience that you had been through such a, uh, I don't want to say brutal, but rugged preparation that you were just ready for the next level.
1: You can say boo, want?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you said it and not
1: saying it. Just <laughs> hilarious. But um, I yeah, I mean we we practice hard, long hours. So yeah, anything that you go to after that, it, and it depends on the franchise you went to. Like we had we had tough, um, we had tough training camps in New Orleans, mostly because it was one hundred and seventeen degrees in the swamp. Mm-hmm. But um. I mean, if you, by the time, there's a difference there too, because if I got drafted down with the Philly, my experience would have been a lot different, you know, because when I got to Philly, our training camp was, I don't want to say it was, well, see, I'm, I'm pulling on you now. I don't want to say it was soft, but it, it wasn't as intense as it was in New Orleans. But we, we got out there, we did our work and it was, it was quick. You know, hour and a half, hour forty, and then we'll go back in, and then we'll go back out another hour forty. In New Orleans, we were out there two and a half hours each. So it's it's just depending on the team you go to. Also, um, I will say New Orleans training camp was was much easier than Kansas State training camps. Um, but not as drastic. If I went from Kansas State to like a team like Philadelphia.
0: I can't even imagine trying to tell a team, aside from the fact you can't do it now at NCAA football, we're going to have four days. I mean, there'd be a riot if you try to do that nowadays. Yeah, it would, it would be a whole march. Um, wow. Well, I mean, that just, I can't imagine, man. How do you do four practices in a day and get up the next morning and still be a functioning human being? It just had to be unbelievable. I can't answer that question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we just did it. We just did it, man. I mean, that's what we were supposed to do. That's what we were told to do. and That's what we do. Amazing. I mean, I mean, I mean, and, and then the payoff is you blow teams out, sixty-six to seven. You know, so what? I mean, what are you going to say? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you know, uh, Nick Saban is, is notorious for having you know tough practices and tough camps, right? He wins the national championship every third year. He's always in the na- in the playoffs. You know, he goes to Miami and don't win any games. It's not the same, right? Yeah. You can't, you can't, you can't expect all that and then not have the result because the players are not going to go for it. You know, but you know, Coach had the recipe. He had the recipe. It was working when we tasted it. It was good and we wanted some more. So if you want some more, we got four prices a day. We're going to have watermelon in the middle <laughs> and a Coke, and we're going to go back out there and do two more, and we'll see you guys tomorrow.
0: Man. That's what we do. End of 98, you had the upheaval in the program, and Coach Stoops is gone by that point, but um, you had so many coaches leave, and 99 was just a – kind of a weird season. and had to be looking around the locker room. He lost so many great players and so many different coaches were around. Uh, but the program kept going, didn't it? Just kept plugging away. It was it was incredible what Coach Snyder got rolling. It
1: is. It really is. I mean, that just shows you where the meat of the program is. The meat of the program didn't go anywhere. You know? Yeah. That's Coach Snyder. Yeah. And that's the principle that he laid down and the routines that he set in place and the people that he put in place and the way he manages those people, you know, I always said as a head coach, you are less of a coach and more of a manager of men. Hmm. Like your, your days of X and Owen, the hours that you spend on that drastically, drastically decrease, but On the college campus, you got, what, 100, 120 guys that you got to manage on top of 20 coaches and assistant coaches. And you got to make sure everybody's doing their job, and everybody that you can, you got to delegate, you know, so you're managing this vehicle more than you are coaching. You know, that's the way it was when I got to, uh, when I got to Philly. And Dorique, great manager of men. Great coach also, new X's and O's, but knew how to handle everybody, knew who to put in certain positions, knew who to apply to this specific problem, you know, knew how to delegate. So I think when you have that, you can plug in, you can plug in, you know, unplug different pieces and still keep rolling. As long as you're managing the vehicle, managing the organization and keeping everything intact and keep the, keep the gears oiled and everything that you gotta do when you're overseeing things. So, um, for that, I, I think he was, he was doing a great job at, and things didn't really fall apart until that manager of men left mm-hmm. and stayed. And then we had somebody else come in and try to be a coach. Didn't work out that.
0: Interesting. Um Interesting. <clears throat> you played 10 years in the league, right? Um, right. How did your body hold up through that process? During or like now. Both. I mean now you probably so, feel like you're an old man, but during the whole yeah. process.
1: Um my first five years in the league I was pretty beat up. I had surgery every off, almost every off season. Couldn't catch a break. And then um I got by the time I got to Philly, nothing. So um I made it through those first five, six years. Um, I mean, it's rough, but at that time you're young, right? So, okay. you don't you're young, you bounce back pretty good. If you don't have anything major, major, like you just move on at that time, they were giving you, you know, pills or whatever. So whatever you did have that was hurting, didn't hurt, particularly during the game. So, uh, yeah it's a trade-off like you you're there doing what you've always wanted to do what you what you dreamed of and it's do you want to do that and hurt a little bit or do you want to go home (laughs) that's really what it boils down to you know so you you put up with as much as you are willing to put up with how important is to, to you is it you know for me um it was pretty important because it's something that. I vocally and mentally put into the universe to do. You know, soon as the idea popped in my head, that was it. You know, so um, you know it was, it was going to take a lot, like a lot, to keep me from being on the field and trying trying to produce the best I can, no matter what was going on. But um, <clears throat> you know, after a certain point, a certain length of time that importance starts to decrease. Mm-hmm. You know. First couple of years, nothing else matters with it. Year six, seven, eight, there's a slope. At least for me. I can't speak to everybody, obviously. But, you know, there's if you know, you you deal with certain situations where it's more about um the politics of the game or, you know, it's more about contracts, it's more about business, right? Um And you know, at that time, like teams are starting to look for replacement also. So there's, it's a different stage. You got to start figuring out what you're going to do after. And Mm -hmm. once you start thinking about that, you spend a little bit of time thinking about that. And then a little bit less time thinking about football and what you're actually doing right now. So it was a slow, for me, it was a slow degrading
0: process up until Hmm which is when I decided to call it, call it um, And how's the body now? Um,
1: you know, I, I, I went and had a, a full evaluation last year and he made, he made a bigger deal about my injuries and past injuries than I do, which you know, kind of open my eyes a little bit. I'm, I'm always like, I'm okay. You know, I can get this done. I, I have this to do. I have this to do, this to do. I ain't got time for pain. I ain't got time to be laying around. I got to do this, do this, do this, do this. So, but, you know, him running through my chart all in one sitting, my 10-year chart all in one sitting and doing all the x-rays and just checking the, checking your body from head to toe, This is for the NFL. And um, just telling me what I have coming ahead. You know, with my knee or my hip or my ankle or my shoulder or my wrist or my neck, whatever you know, and you know that that took me back a little bit because I don't really think about that stuff. You know, it hurts, but I rotate my wrist; it don't hurt anymore until you know 15 minutes later. But I I can't complain, man. Like I had a lot of injuries and I had a lot of surgeries, but I didn't. I never had like. Major ACL, you know what I'm saying? Or a broken leg or a broken arm or, you know, clavicle, or rotator cuff. I had a rotator cuff in high school, but I was past it by the time I got to the same But, you know, I never had those. I just had a lot of medium, medium um, injuries, I guess you would say. Yeah. Nothing like super major. So, you um, so know, to play that long, you know, including the, eight, the 10 years, five years at Kansas state. And then I was playing football since I was eight before that. That's a long time to come out the way I came out. I, I'm blessed and I'm thankful that, you know, I have what I have. I can still walk. I can still jog a bit, you know, up until COVID started, I was in basketball league. I'm still playing. So, you know, I can't complain, man. Like I, I I don't feel great, but I don't feel like shit either.
0: Yeah. I get that. It's amazing how the standard kind of goes. I don't feel like shit. That's good. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, One, one more thing that I'm interested in going from New Orleans to Philly seems like, um, you know, football's a business. I get that, but that is such a cultural change. Those two cities are so different. Aren't they?
1: Or are they not? I I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Uh, So that, change tells in comparison between the comparison between where I'm from and Manhattan, Kansas. Yeah,
0: interesting. And
1: then Manhattan, Kansas to New Orleans. (laughs) So New Orleans and Philly is like, eh, (laughs) you know, it's like, eh, it's another city. You know, but uh, New Orleans, even now, as an adult, like, that was the first major city that I lived in. It's not even major. I can't even call it a major city, but the first city I lived in were I was an adult and I was not from there, you know? Mm-hmm. Kansas, I was in school. Cool. You move to New Orleans, you're on your own. You got to figure everything out. Everything's not structured for you. And just being more engrossed with a, a city of people. And New Orleans is like his own country, man. It's not even like the languages. They speak different. Yeah. They have their own language. I don't know if you guys you know yeah. that. Yeah, they, like... We were in the swamp in training camp. I would go to a store and pick some, pick some stuff up, and the two guys would be behind the counter talking. I have no idea what they're saying.
0: Incredible.
1: They have no idea what they're saying. You know, the food is different. The music is different. The buildings are different. The people are different. The traditions and the culture are different. You know, they have parades for no reason down there, <laughs> and they all dress like Indians. There are black people dressed like Indians. Why are we dressed like Indians today? Yeah. You know, yeah. but, you know, over time, you figure out the culture and where it comes from, where it started, where it originated. And it's a French colony back in the day, and everything kind of transitioned. That's why you have all the EA, UXs rather than the O's. And you start to learn all this stuff. Like, oh, that's cool, man. That's cool. I like this. But um, definitely, definitely, man, a different city for a lot of different reasons, good and bad. So um, I know when I was there, it was one of the crime capitals and murder capitals of the world. Yeah, and you know you have like downtown is surrounded by the wards. You know, so I mean, we don't know where you're going, and you can go the wrong way. You end up somewhere you not. You don't need to mm-hmm. be. So it's it's one of those things. But um, you New know, Orleans, I would say, is different from any city. Like it would be a culture shock for anybody to come from any city and go to New Orleans just like it would be for somebody from New Orleans to go to any other city, which happened for Katrina yeah. because a lot of people had to leave and never came back home. And they ended up in Atlanta and Houston, and Dallas and San Antonio. And some people were in Idaho and Iowa. And first time out of the city, first time knowing life outside of New Orleans and actually seeing people Living better lives like that look like them that live better lives than they were able to live in New Orleans with no more skill set than they have. You know, like people move to Atlanta, it's all these, like Atlanta's the black capital of the world right yeah. now. And those guys are living great. You know, big houses, a lot of land, whatever car you want, not doing anything special, just working. And people from New Orleans see that like, how, why couldn't we do that? So they stay there and they figured out. Now they have their own house and their own land, and they don't never come back to New Orleans. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's just a it's a different different city. When I was in New Orleans, I had my foundation, and I was taking kids to this place called Celebration Station. It was like a like a playground, like a amusement park kind of thing. A cart, uh, arcade games, and go karts, and mini golf, and all that kind of stuff. And it was literally like a fifteen minute ride from the ward to the celebration station. <laughs> and when I was picking these kids up, and their parents were talking like, "You're taking our kids out of town?" I'm like, what? <laughs> it's 50, you've never been right there? No, never been there. Crazy. Like, wow.
0: So yeah. Now New Orleans is fun. A fun time though. Place. I love New Orleans. It's a. I love New Orleans. Uh, that culture is so cool. I, I saw this this kind of spinning off into a weird place, but um, I saw this really cool documentary about the birth of the blues, and mm-hmm. that you can draw the line of the blues back to Native American roots. And one of the big focal points of that, of course, is New Orleans, where the escaped slaves and the Native Americans intermingled Correct. so much. And that's why that culture is there with everyone dressed up as Indians because they have an in Indian heritage. Um, it, it was absolutely incredible. And it's not something I really had ever thought about uh, the importance of that and how it led to the blues. And it, it was incredible. It was just a really eye opening experience because they, they had some Native American singers doing traditional music. It was a tribe. I didn't know it was from the South and, and it was as soon as they start singing, you go, This is the blues. I mean, this is incredible mm-hmm. how, how it yeah. how our culture has cross pollinated, so to speak. But New Orleans has the best music, mm. the best musicians, and the best food. And I and I yeah. gotta tell you, I've traveled a lot of places, um, and this was pre Katrina, but I never been uh felt more welcomed than That's down the, in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah off of the bat yeah. Um, It was, it was amazing. Of course, I also didn't wander too far, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but uh, that, that was uh, I I loved New Orleans. I'd love to go back. I just haven't been back. And one of the things I've always wanted to kind of bring this thing full circle is I always wanted to see K state fans at the sugar bowl, because I think that would be 25,000 K state fans in new Orleans would be one of the most crazy cultural collisions I could think of. I just would I be... think that would be the I think that would be the calmest Braver Street has ever been. <laughs> that would be my prediction. Like they
1: would get there and they would sightsee, but they would be like like no drinking. <laughs> Everybody'd be home by seven. Oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> they, they might, so you got uh, better insight on the on the fan company than I do. But they
0: they might uh, uh, but with, you have yeah, a lot of fun in and, New Orleans. Yeah, with the you know, the comparison
1: between uh, regular bourbon crowd
0: mm-hmm. and Kansas State Emaw crowd, I think it would be drastic. Yeah, it'd be crazy. It'd be crazy. Darren, I appreciate it, man. I hope you're doing well and and uh Tampa's a cool place. I I uh I love going down there. I've got some friends in Sarasota and it's just uh, a great part. I was born at West Palm. I didn't grow up there, but um, I've got a real affection for the state of Florida, and I'm glad you're doing well.
1: Oh, thank you, man. Thank you. Good talking to you, Josh.
0: Yeah, good talking to you, and uh, if you hear from Niall Wirin, let me know. I saw Niall. I saw Niall twice when I was here. He lives here locally. Oh, really? And
1: the first time I saw him was at a charity function. It was at a a, a skeet shooting range and he was there. I had no idea he was going to be there, and then the other time I saw him, he was still playing with the stone. That was a long, long, long time ago. Oh, yeah. um, but I didn't really get a chance to uh, to talk to him much. You know, he didn't seem too interested. So I don't know. He had a lot going on. I know his wife uh, passed away oh. um, a while ago uh, during birth, and uh, I, I don't have no idea where he is now though. Hmm.
0: I just but assumed I, he was at witness love to protection. Catch up
1: to him. <laughs> hey maybe
0: we'll Thank you my loving friend to death. loving the death though yeah he's a good dude thank you yeah. great to talk to you thanks Darren all right thanks Dan. Bye. bye you know I've learned through doing these podcasts these conversations, never prejudge how long a discussion is going to be and what I mean by that is I thought this would be like a 30-40 minute discussion in and out Darren's not a big talker And honestly, I didn't have as much background on him as I did other guys, but that went really well. I just really enjoyed that. How did I not know Darren Howard was a DJ in college? I feel like I absolutely failed everyone by not knowing that detail back in 98 when the football team was so good that he was a DJ. It's beautiful. It's it's really cool to see how it kind of carried on now into his professional life post football well that'll do it for another edition of the life of fits i got some great guests i'm working on here for the coming weeks and we're going to steer off into some other areas as we focus on my life outside of k-state sports but i'll take you along for the ride i hope you enjoy it and remember guys do it for matt miller go get your psa scored let's get everyone that listens to this that's 45 and older to have their score Do that for me. Do that for Matt. Because the PSA score, a simple blood test, is the best way for the early diagnosis of prostate cancer. And if you catch it early, you're going to win the battle. Take care, everyone. I'll talk to you real soon.